Good morning. Let's pray, and then we'll read the passage. Loving Father, uh, we turn this time over to You, and we thank You that the Word is Your Word, that the Spirit who illumines it is Your Spirit, and that You've put Him in us who believe, and You've revealed these precious and magnificent promises to us. And Father, You intend for us to, to know them and to abide in them and to be driven by them. We pray this morning, uh, Father, that You would make that so. That You would uh, pierce our hearts with the power of these gifts that You have given to us, especially this one. And that we might know how marvelously blessed we are in Jesus Christ. We ask it in His name. Amen. Alright, let's read the passage. It is... Uh, Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22. <clears throat> Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in His flesh the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that in Himself He might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through Him, we both have our access in one Spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. This is the Word of the Lord. Please be seated. In 1971, when I was 15 years old and every telephone was hardwired to the wall, the Coca-Cola company aired what some have billed as the most famous ad of all time. They gathered men and women from many different ethnicities and nations onto a tiny hilltop in Italy. That's what the caption said, a tiny hilltop in Italy, to sing the song, I'd like to teach the world to sing. It was a grand celebration of humanity's dream for a harmonious and unified mankind. Here are some of the words from the original song before the admin got a hold of it. I'd like to build the world a home and furnish it with love, with apple trees and honeybees and snow-white turtle doves. Sounds a little like Disney before the cynicism set in. 
I'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. I'd like to hold it in my arms and keep it company. I'd like to see the world for once all standing hand in hand and hear them echo through the hills for peace throughout the land. It fascinated me later in life that in a commercial that celebrated diversity, nobody seemed to notice that everybody in the ad was under 30. And of course, the advertising men who produced the commercial had a very specific strategy in mind to make that wonderful goal of world peace and harmony a reality. They put a bottle of Coca-Cola in the hands of every person on that hill in Italy. And they adjusted the words to the second verse. I'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. I'd like to buy the world a Coke and keep it company. That very same year, 1971, John Lennon released a song that proposed a different means to accomplishing the same cherished goal of blissful worldwide harmony. The song, Imagine, became the biggest selling single of John Lennon's solo career. In it, he wrote, Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. Above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for and no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. Ironically and painfully, that song finally hit number one in December 1980 following John Lennon's assassination. Since then, millions of people have consumed billions of bottles and cans of Coca-Cola with other people. More people than ever are living for today. More people than ever have abandoned any allegiance to country, especially around here, More people than ever are convinced that there's no heaven, no hell, no true religion, and for that matter, no true truth. So by all those measures, you would think that the age-old quest for worldwide harmony among human beings has been progressing very well over the last several decades. It's been almost 50 years. Ask any police officer in any major city in America how we're doing with the harmony thing or just turn on the news, any world news broadcast, and watch the first ten minutes. Guys, it's looking like we're going to need a whole lot more Coca-Cola. So is the dream of harmony, of unity, a mirage? The answer, fortunately, is no. But there's only one way to have it. Our passage this morning is about that way. It's about the real peace that forever tears down the wall of infinite separation between man and God and between people and other people. It's about the true peace with God and with one another that all who belong to Jesus Christ possess right now and forever. I need to point out that this morning's message is not fundamentally an exhortation. I listened to a lot of sermons this week. Most of them went that direction with this passage. 
But we're still in the part of this great epistle in which Paul is setting before us the extravagant blessings, the wealth that God has lavished upon all who belong to Jesus Christ by grace through faith in Him alone. This passage is a celebration of our peace, of our unity with one another in Christ and in God, with God. In the first ten verses of Ephesians 2, Paul spoke of the wonderfully complete salvation that God has given to all who trust in Christ alone. Salvation freely given to those who were previously dead in our transgressions and sins, as all human beings were. Twice he said, by grace you have been saved. Past tense. And he made it very clear that 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 salvation was all God's doing. Now in verses 11 to 22, Paul unveils another beautiful facet of the perfect salvation that God has freely given to us. And that marvelous gift of God is real reconciliation with God and with God's people in Christ alone. The first thing that Paul establishes in verses 11 and 12 is that his Gentile readers were once separated in every sense of that word, both from God and from God's people. While there were Jewish synagogues and Jewish communities in virtually every significant city throughout the Roman Empire, by the time Paul wrote this letter, Gentiles made up the great majority of Christians in Asia Minor in the area, the region around which this letter was circulated, probably starting at the city of Ephesus. The you, plural, that Paul is addressing in verses 11 and 12 is Gentiles who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ. Paul begins by reminding those believers who were Gentiles in the flesh just how far off they previously were from God and from God's people. But he gives us a very strong clue in the first verse of this passage, verse 11, that the Jews who steadfastly believed that they possessed what the Gentiles didn't, which was the favor of the one true God, that those Jews were missing something, (laughs) something very big. He says the Gentiles were called uncircumcision by those who were named as the circumcision. And that second group, of course, is the Jews. But Paul is careful to point out that the circumcision that the Jews believed gave them a great advantage over the Gentiles was a circumcision performed in the flesh by human hands. If you read Romans 2, Especially the last part of Romans 2, you'll see just what Paul thinks of that kind of circumcision. What Paul is saying is that the Gentiles were despised by the Jews not because one of those groups was actually favored by God and the other wasn't, but because one of those groups bore on their bodies a symbol of covenant relationship with God and the other didn't. The Jews saw that symbol as proof of a special connection with God that Gentiles did not possess. 
even, by the way, if they got circumcised. But the Jews were wrong. And that will be important a little later in this passage. In verse 12, Paul tells the Gentile believers that they were previously separate from Christ. They were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, meaning from the rights and privileges of membership in the Jewish community. They were strangers to the covenants of promise. And those covenants came from God. They were without hope and without God in the world. They were, in short, very far off, both from God and from the real people of God. And there was a great schism between them and those who considered themselves to be the real people of God. Paul's description here of the Gentiles in their pre-Christ condition would have been resoundingly endorsed by the Jews of his day. Except, of course, that the Jews would have used the present tense verbs instead of past tense. The division between Jews and Gentiles was as profound as any division between human beings has ever been. Jews would not enter the homes of Gentiles because they believed that would render them ceremonially unclean and unfit to draw near to the temple, to the presence of God. They typically would not eat with the Gentile even if the Gentile had converted to Judaism and practiced the dietary restrictions prescribed in the Law of Moses. At the Jerusalem temple of Jesus' day, the outermost court of the temple was known as the court of the Gentiles. As you moved from the court of the Gentiles toward the temple building itself, there was a balustrade, there was a fence about five feet tall that separated the court of the Gentiles from everything else in the temple. And in order to get through that fence, you had to enter at one of a few different entry points. And then you had to, if a Jew was going to go all the way into the court of the women or the court of Israel, which was up in here, he would have to ascend 14 steps and then go through another entrance in a very high wall to get into the the main or central courts of the temple compound. At the entrances through, at the openings through that balustrade, that five-foot-high division, there were placed stone tablets, and each of those tablets contained a warning. One of those tablets is still on display in a museum in Istanbul. There, You, you can read that, right? Translated from Greek to English, it says, No foreigner is to enter within the balustrade and embankment around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his death, which follows. In other words, Gentile, if you step beyond this wall, your certain death, which will shortly ensue, will be your fault. The temple authorities, along with every Jew, who would be present at the temple when such an infraction occurred, would immediately stone the offending Gentile to death. And we're talking about Gentile converts who came to the temple to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Roman government permitted the Jews to execute that, that immediate sentence of death to anyone who violated this law of the Jews. In Acts chapter 21, a crowd at the temple in Jerusalem laid hold of the Apostle Paul who wrote this letter 
who was a Jew, to stone him to death based on the accusation that he had brought a Gentile of Ephesus named Trophimus into the inner courts of the temple. Paul had not committed that violation. God preserved Paul's life that day through the intervention of Roman officers who were concerned that the entire city of Jerusalem was about to be thrown into riot mode. Now before I move on, I want to ask you a question. Did the design of Herod's temple with that barrier to keep the Gentiles out, did that match up with the mind of God? Is that what God intended? Let me just read for you. Don't don't worry about turning there unless you're really quick. Isaiah 56. I'm going to read a few verses. Starting at verse 3. Listen to this. This is God speaking. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to Yahweh say, the Lord will surely separate me from His people. The foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him and to love the name of the Lord, to be His servants, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds My covenant, even those I will bring to My holy mountain and I will make them joyful in My house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on My altar, for My house will be called a house of prayer for all. The peoples. The Lord Yahweh who gathers the dispersed of Israel declares, yet others I will gather to them, to those already gathered. So did this reflect the mind of God? No. But the mindset of the Jews made any notion of harmony between Jews and Gentiles absolutely unthinkable. But Paul declares here in Ephesians 2, that 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 very unity, that harmony, is exactly what God has accomplished already in Jesus Christ. In verse 13 he says, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Then in verses 14 to 18, he switches pronouns from you to we. Not from Gentiles to Jews, but from Gentiles to everybody who belongs to Christ. He says, for he, Jesus himself, is our peace who made both groups one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in Himself He might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross. By by it, by the cross, having put to death the enmity. (laughs) Jesus tore down the wall of division. Christ did not, Christ did not abolish the righteousness that the law of Moses required. In Romans 7, Paul says that the law is holy and righteous and good. Friends, what Christ abolished was the deeply entrenched belief that adherence to the commandments and ordinances of the law Keeping the law could ever actually make a person righteous in the eyes of God. That's what Jesus abolished. 
He abolished every notion that the law could ever be our way of access to a perfectly holy God. Jesus didn't change any of what the law requires. In fact, He made it crystal clear in the Sermon on the Mount that that could never happen. He said not one letter and not one stroke of a letter of God's law would ever be abolished. He didn't abolish the righteous requirement of the law. He showed us in person what that requirement actually is. Because men and women and children in this room, what God requires of you is Christ. What God requires of every human being is what you see in Jesus Christ. And in revealing the true standard of God's law, which is that you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, Matthew 5.48, Jesus proved that law-keeping will never by any remote stretch make any human being acceptable to God. He utterly destroyed dependence on law-keeping or on the doing of any kind of good works of, of any kind as a way to become righteous and acceptable in the eyes of our perfectly holy God. <laughs> See, Jesus completely leveled the playing field for all of humanity. <laughs> and when He did, we were all found to be on the losing side. Jew and Gentile alike, equally lost and eternally condemned in our sin, just like Paul said we all were in the first three verses of this chapter. But fortunately, Jesus didn't leave the glories of heaven just to prove that Jews and Gentiles are all equally condemned. He came to be our peace with God and with each other. As I read verses 13 to 18 once again, just listen and Listen in these verses for the centrality of Jesus because Paul pounds on the centrality of Jesus in this passage. He says, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in His flesh the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in Himself He might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to you who were near. For through Him, we both have our access in one Spirit to the Father. Did Paul leave any question about how this unity came about? It's all Jesus. Jesus didn't just change the hearts of saved Jews and Gentiles so that we'd finally start being nice to each other. He made us one in Christ. In verse 15, Paul says that Jesus made two peoples, Jews and Gentiles, into one new man. He took us from being plural to being singular. And that new man, that one new man, is Him. Because He has brought us into perfect union with Himself. That's what chapter 1 pounded. 
in Him, in Him, in Him, in Him. And beloved, it's not two ones, it's one one. The new unity that Jesus created is not two ones, it's one one. The reconciliation of men to men, of people to people, is not a separate work of reconciliation from the reconciliation of people to God. God destroyed the dividing wall between us by reconciling to Himself one people that He had created that never existed before. See, it's not a horizontal reconciliation of men to men and a vertical reconciliation of men to God. It's the reconciliation of one people to God. Verse 16 uh, beautifully distills this truth about the the one true reconciliation. And it's amazing. It says Jesus reconciled Jews and Gentiles again, both in one body to God through the cross. In one body to God through the cross. By it having put to death the enmity. Verse 18 says essentially the same thing, but it it shifts the focus just a little and it's it's very powerful. It says, for through Him, through Jesus... We both, Jew and Gentile, have our access in one Spirit to the Father. Our one way of access to God is Jesus. Jesus said that in John 14 to the disciples, right? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father. No one has access to the Father except through me. You know what the Jews saw the temple and the tabernacle before the temple, the tabernacle? You know what they saw that as? a way of access to God. That was a picture of a way of access to God and Jesus is the substance. Our one way of access is through Jesus in one Spirit. See, it's not circumcision. It's not the priesthood or the sacrifices or the tabernacle or the temple or the covenants. It's none of those things that distinguish Jews from Gentiles the same things that divided Jews from Gentiles that actually marks the people of God as the people of God. It's not those things. It is the indwelling of God's Holy Spirit that marks us and seals us as His. He, the Holy Spirit, is the down payment of every believer's eternal inheritance. And don't miss in verse 18 that that verse is wonderfully Trinitarian. Through the Son, we have our access in one Spirit to the Father. The Son, the Spirit, and the Father. I want to make at least a stab here at clarifying something really important. Something that's very much in focus in this passage and that a lot of Christians have a hard time understanding. The true people of God in every generation before and after the cross are not those who bear the symbols of relationship with God, but is those who have relationship. And those who have a relationship with God are those who have been justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in the precious promises of God that are fulfilled in Christ alone. In other words, those who believe Gospel promises. Those are the people who have been redeemed, forgiven, 
and covered with the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, some of you are thinking at this point, how would anyone in the Old Testament have been able to believe Gospel promises when the Gospel wasn't preached until Jesus came? And the answer is very simple. The Gospel has been preached since the fall of Adam. Beloved, there is not one single essential truth of the Gospel of Jesus Christ that you won't find in the Old Testament. Not one. And if there's one that you don't think you can find, come see me. I want to explain because I know this is confusing. God made His Gospel promises clearer and clearer over many generations, but there were men and women in every generation who trusted those promises as God had made them known in their day. And those men and women were justified. They were declared righteous in the eyes of God the same way you and I were. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ, the long-promised Messiah alone. And unless God redirects, I'm planning to do a short series on that theme right after we finish the study of Ephesians. For now, let me just... Let me just demonstrate what I'm talking about with a few snapshots of how that plays out in the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 12, God promised Abraham that through his seed, descendant, singular, God would bless all the families of the earth. Abraham, certainly, he thought that was descendants, plural, and and in one sense it is, but, but bear with me. When Abraham believed that promise that God would bless all the families of the earth through his descendant, He was trusting a gospel promise. He was trusting in a promise that would be fulfilled in Christ. Now Abraham didn't have much of that story yet. But God made him a Christ-centered promise and Abraham took God at His Word. And that's what faith does. I know it was a gospel promise because Paul says it was. In Galatians chapter 3, Verses 8 and 9, listen to what Paul says. The Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the Gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then those, he says, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. So Paul says that that promise was a Gospel promise. The Two verses just before those two, verses 6 and 7 point uh, of Galatians 3, point to God's promise in Genesis 15 that God would create from Abraham's offspring a people that would outnumber the visible stars in the night sky. And Galatians 3 verse 6 points all the way back to Genesis 15 verse 6 in which God declared that Abraham was justified when he believed that promise. Paul does the same thing, says the same thing in Romans 4. Galatians 3.6 says, Even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That means it was credited to his account. The righteousness of Christ was credited to his account. His faith was counted as righteousness in the eyes of God and that's called justification. And beloved, that's how anyone who's saved got saved. And then Paul adds, Galatians 3, 7, Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. When David believed God's promise in 2 Samuel 7 that God would raise up from him 
a king, a descendant, who would rule over his people in justice and righteousness and whose dominion would last forever, David was believing a gospel promise. A promise that would be fulfilled by Christ. Again, David didn't have the whole story of God's promised Messiah, but it was getting clearer. And he took God at His word. The witness of God the Father concerning His Son was not as clear or as fully developed before the cross as it was after the cross. Even the disciples scratched their heads quite a lot. But when God made promises that Jesus was going to fulfill, those who took God at His word were saved by grace through faith. God placed the entire debt of their sin on Jesus who paid that debt in full at the cross and God clothed them in the righteousness of Christ making them His own beloved people forever. See, people have always been justified the same way. That's who the people of God are. In the many generations before Jesus came from heaven to earth, most of those people were Jews. The covenants, the law of Moses, the prophets, the scriptures, the priesthood, the sacrifices, the tabernacle, the temple were all gracious provisions from God to Israel that pointed directly to Messiah and that were fulfilled by Messiah. I hope we get to investigate that some in several weeks. Paul finishes out this... uh, beautiful proclamation of our peace with God together with one another in Christ by talking about a construction project in which God is still engaged. First, he tells us about the part of the project that's already been completed, and then he tells us about the part that's ongoing. He says, we who were once strangers and aliens are now already fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Notice he doesn't say fellow citizens with the Jews, but rather fellow citizens with the saints. He says, we were all, and this is Paul talking, he's a Jew, we were all strangers and aliens. We were all lost in sin, following the world, the devil, and the flesh. We were all destined only to the eternal wrath of God. But now, by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, We are now fellow citizens with the saints of every age from every tribe and every tongue and every nation on earth. Together with all who have ever believed the gospel promises of God, we are God's household. God built that household upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. It's a beautiful picture. The cornerstone of a building determined the location and the orientation of the building's foundation and thus of the entire building. The cornerstone was in effect the foundation of the foundation. The household of God is built upon the Word of God given through the apostles and prophets. And the foundation of that foundation is Jesus the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us and showed us the glory of God and died in our place to save us and to create a people for God's own possession. 
The last two verses of the passage move from what we are, God's household, to what we are becoming by God's doing. And that is a holy temple in the Lord. A dwelling of God in the Spirit. Throughout the Bible, the temple is not merely the place where God lives. It's the place where God lives with His people. The place where God lives with His people. The preeminent promise of God to His elect in every age throughout the Bible is that we will be His people. He will be our God. And He will live right in our midst forever. And the cool thing here is that God is still expanding His temple. His presence in the midst of His people. His presence in the midst of His people right now is us and the church worldwide. And God is spreading that temple over the whole earth. Alright, let's get to the so what part. I pointed out at the beginning of this message that this is still the what you have been given in Christ part of the letter, right? Throughout the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul is setting before us the outrageous, unfathomable riches of God's grace that God has lavished upon us by bringing us into union with Jesus Christ. So this passage, this present passage that we're looking at is not fundamentally an exhortation to do something. That's coming, chapter 4. Right now, Paul is establishing the ground of all that we are to do as the children of God. And if you don't stand on the right ground, you don't do the right things. He's telling us what we must know and believe and bank on. Continually reckon as true in order to walk in a manner worthy of our supernatural calling as the redeemed people of God. We need to know these things. And we need to camp out in them. And we need to abide in them. And we need to count them as true in our prayers to God. And we need to count them as true in our conversations with each other. And in our songs. And in our praises. Our mission in the world depends on it. During the years that I've been here at CBC, I have been richly, richly blessed to worship our Lord in this very room and in the old building together with children of God from India and China and Japan and Korea and Afghanistan and Nigeria and France and Germany and Colombia and Russia and Ukraine and Mexico and Canada and Azerbaijan and that's not all. I've gotten to sing hymns and songs of praise to God and to pray side by side with multimillionaires, very generous ones, and welfare recipients, and people from every economic background in between. At our ministry group meetings, I've gotten to pray and fellowship and examine God's Word together with single young believers, families with young children, and great-grandparents all sitting in the same room at the same time. And that's not to mention the considerable diversity of beliefs on non-essential points of theology and practice, differences in musical preference, differences in personal worship styles, and vast differences in personalities that exist in this body. And beloved, that is a beautiful thing in the eyes of our God. If we take that for granted, 
we're treating a mountain of wealth as if it were nothing. I was at Sam's Club a few days ago and a dear black lady at the checkout stand, working the checkout stand, she was somewhat older than I, started to scan my cartload of stuff and I was loaded up. And as she dived into that process, I asked her how her day was going and she she looked up and smiled at me with this beautiful smile and she said, I'm doing just fine. And then she asked me how I was doing and I said, I said, well, I deserve God's judgment and Jesus paid my debt and gave me eternal life so I'd have to say I'm doing really well. I didn't know if she was going to panic and try to change the subject or just clam up. I've seen both of those reactions recently. But this woman, this dear woman who had never seen me in, my, in, in her whole life lit up like a Christmas tree. And she, she smiled from wall to wall and she said, what a marvelous encouragement. What a great encouragement to meet a brother in Christ. And I told her that she and I were going to get to know each other really, really well because we were going to get to spend eternity in the presence of our great God. And at that point, she, she dropped her laser scanner into my cart and she walked over and gave me a hug right in front of everybody. And I hugged her right back. See, she and I both knew in an instant that even though the differences between our backgrounds and life experiences could fill a very large book, the common bond between us was stronger than DNA. And it lasts forever. And beloved, that is beautiful. The bond that brought all of us together and that keeps us together is the bond of one Savior, one Lord, one Spirit, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And beloved, the world knows nothing of that glorious bond until we tell them and show them. There were some people watching when that woman hugged me. <laughs> and a couple of them heard the conversation. In His high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus said to His Father the night before He died, he said, he prayed that we would be one even as he and his father were one. And he said, that oneness would show the world, Father, that you sent me. The evangelistic power of us loving each other the way God calls us to love each other is miraculous. It's miraculous. If there's an exhortation in this passage, it is to celebrate. It's for us to celebrate the incomparably blessed union that God has given us with Himself together, together with all the saints in, through, and because of our miraculous union with Jesus Christ. Oh, that God might open the eyes of our hearts so that we would know the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. We are that inheritance. And beloved, by inheriting Him, we inherit each other. What a gracious gift you are to me by God's doing. What a gracious gift we are to each other. Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above.
Dear Father, we praise You for sending Your beloved Son to destroy the hostility that kept us from You and from each other and to reconcile us in one body as one new man to You. Only through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Father, open our eyes to know the outrageous value of that miraculous gift. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.